What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For so many ailments, blood samples help doctors to make a diagnosis and suggest treatments. But there is no blood test for clinical depression. We look at research that suggests not only is such a test possible, it may be far more specific. And LaDonna Brave Bull Allard was a historian and campaigner for Native American rights. Our obituaries editor looks back on how she came to be the spiritual leader of an international protest against a North Dakota pipeline. But first... This week, Hungary's government passed a law that will radically transform how its universities are run. It was billed in Parliament as the biggest reform to Hungary's higher education system in decades. The government claimed the change was to restore Hungary's universities and stop their decline. In truth, it fits a troubling wider pattern in the country, which its leader proudly calls an illiberal democracy. The Hungarian government has turned over its 11 main state universities to a series of foundations which are going to be controlled by the ruling party, the Fidesz party, which is a right-wing populist party run by Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. And at this stage, they have essentially seized control over every major institution in society. They already had control of government, obviously, the electoral system, the courts, the media, and this means that they're now in control of higher education as well. And it's unclear whether any subsequent government is going to be able to take it back from them. So how exactly will this handover work? The universities have been placed under the control of public foundations, and these foundations have also been given a bunch of assets to help fund them. The government has done something which is characteristic of Orban and of Videz, which is to take control of the legal niceties of reform processes in order to subtly give itself tremendous power. So the boards of trustees of these foundations are now going to be appointed initially just by the government with no power of veto or influence for any other bodies, including the universities themselves. And the members of those boards can serve until the age of 80. When one of them dies or retires, their replacement will be appointed by the board itself. So essentially, control has been turned over to these guys, possibly in perpetuity. So the fear here is that the country's universities become mouthpieces for the government, for the Fidesz party. Yes. The universities currently have senates 
which are bodies appointed by the faculty and so forth, the reform basically writes them out of university governance. So these trustees can do anything they want to. They have say over the curriculum. They have say over the expenses. If they want to use them for for for-profit purposes, they can use them for that. They can use them to fund their own lifestyles. We don't know what they're going to do with them. But this is a potentially completely irresponsible structure, which is an open invitation to corruption. But the biggest anxiety is that Fidesz is going to use the universities in the way that it's used control of the media, which is basically to turn it into a propaganda machine. Fidesz's rule is based on the identification of a series of usually imaginary enemies. They like to crusade against the supposed plots of George Soros, the Hungarian-born billionaire. They like to make a big stink about Russell seizing too much control. And the anxiety is that they're going to use the universities to propound that ideology to a new generation of students and also to gin up the kinds of conspiratorial controversies that they use to win elections. And and why do you say that all of these changes will be so hard to undo? Fidesz has a two-thirds majority in the Hungarian parliament, which means that it can change the constitution at will. And it's inserted the governance structures of these foundations into the constitution, which means that any subsequent government that wants to change it needs to have a two-thirds majority too. It's possible that the opposition could beat Fidesz in the next elections next year. They have, to some extent, stopped squabbling as much as they used to, and they might be able to win. But it's almost impossible to envision them getting a two-thirds majority in parliament. Fidesz has spent the last 10 years gerrymandering the electoral system and extending its control over electoral boards and so forth. So we may be stuck with what some analysts describe as a parallel state in the universities in perpetuity. Fidesz will just retain control indefinitely. And we've talked several times on the show about Hungary's slide away from democracy, this illiberal democracy of, of Mr. Orban. How does this latest change to, to the university structure fit into all of that? Freedom House, which is a democracy watchdog, used to rate Hungary as a fully free democracy when Orban took over in 2010. For the last two years, it considers it a hybrid regime, which is one grade above authoritarian. Its democracy scores are now worse than Serbia's. The most discomforting thing is that Viktor Orban is a kind of a brilliant innovator, and the ideas that he comes up with for how to create autocratic governance while maintaining a facade of democracy get picked up by all sorts of other countries. Uh, They've already been imitated by Poland, which has taken over its own media and is trying to take over its court system, and would-be imitators of Orban in places like Croatia, Czech Republic, and Slovenia are often trying to do the same things. You could expect to see this takeover of the universities imitated in other authoritarian populist countries as well. And in countries where there are very strong far-right populist contenders, like in France, where Marine Le Pen could win her own next presidential elections, they will be imitating some of these ideas too. More broadly, this desire to seize control of every social institution is something that all illiberal parties share. And it's a threat to the fundamental structure of democracy. If you don't have a division of powers. And if you don't have separate autonomous centers of social power and control and resources, then you can't really maintain pluralism in the long run. And European leaders have been agonizing about, about how to slow this slide for, for years now. What do you think can be done here? There are already mechanisms built into the treaties that form the European Union that ought to be able to block a country like Hungary from doing this, or at least from receiving 
billions of euros a year in European aid while it's doing so. But those mechanisms have been stymied. There's something called Article 7, which has ultimately been blocked because it requires a unanimous vote in the European Council to apply it. But there are some new mechanisms that could help. The EU adopted what they call a rule of law mechanism as part of its current spending framework, which just kicked in this year. In principle, if a country is overriding the rule of law, then its spending on a program which is seen to override the rule of law can be restricted. So, for example, because Hungary is abusing the rule of law in academia, any academic aid that it's receiving as part of European spending could be cut off. And the European Commission has been very reluctant to apply these measures. But there are voices in the European Parliament who are much angrier and are making a much bigger stink. They're actually threatening to sue the European Commission if it doesn't start moving on some of these violations. But we've been talking about the questionable rule of law in Hungary for several years now. Why is it that the European leadership hasn't acted more decisively before now? One thing that's really missing here is a lot more anger from citizens of other European countries about what's going on in Hungary. Hungary is a member of the European Union, which is supposed to be a club of liberal democracies, and it is perverting the structure of liberal democracy, and it's being subsidized by the EU to do so. Hungary was the biggest beneficiary of EU funding from 2014 to 20. European citizens have got to be a lot more angry about this. Their taxpayer dollars are being sent to a country whose government uses them for corruption on an extraordinary scale. And Europe has the power to stop that. It will do that if European voters get angry enough about it. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. In some parts of the world, as many as one person in four experiences clinical depression at some point during their life. To make a diagnosis, doctors assess a patient's self-reported mood against a checklist of symptoms. But a better understanding of the biochemistry behind depression could lead to less subjective diagnoses and more effective treatments. The way we diagnose depression now is uh, fairly arbitrary. Kurt Kleiner writes about science for The Economist. But some scientists have been looking at developing a more reliable tests that can use a blood sample to diagnose the condition. And how does the test work? So a group of scientists led by a guy named Alexander Nicolescu at Indiana University, they've been looking for biochemical markers of uh, this illness. So a biomarker is just a naturally occurring molecule in the body. It'll give you a sign of a condition or a disease. Biomarkers exist for all sorts of diseases, but not necessarily for a lot of psychiatric diseases yet. So what they did was... Over a period of about 15 years, 
They have been looking at hundreds of patients, taking blood tests, tracking their moods, uh, seeing if they've been hospitalized, when they're better, when they're worse. And so they looked within these blood samples for a molecule called RNA. Now, RNA is a molecule that sort of translates the information that is encoded in our DNA. When a gene becomes more active, it encodes more RNA. The RNA then goes on to build a protein, and the protein is what's important for the function in our body that that gene is encoding for. So by looking for these RNA molecules, they were able to see as mood goes up and down, as depression or bipolar gets better or worse, which of these genes are actually more or less active. And so how did they comb through the activity of the genes to to make the association then with depression? First of all, they found that there were literally thousands of genes that were changing as mood went up and down. But they did look at these thousands of genes, and they went and they did a literature search. There are papers, there are giant DNA databases that can show out of all these genes, which of them have been implicated previously by researchers in depression, which of these genes might have had something to do with depression based on previous illnesses. They combine that with looking at which of the genes seem to be changed the most and the most reliably, and they narrowed that down to 26 genes, and they tested them on hundreds more patients. And when they finally were done, they had winnowed it down to 13 biomarkers, which seemed to be the best predictors for uh, depression and bipolar disorder. And so the biomarkers that are found in, in the blood samples then become predictive for particular kinds of depression? That's right. As the levels of biomarker go up or down, they can predict a number of different things depending on which biomarker it is. Some of them will show you as this biomarker increases in its levels, the depression is likely getting worse. Others will show you that we're actually on our way to mania now. Depending on the levels of the biomarkers and the combination of biomarkers and which way each one is changing, you can even predict, is this a patient that's likely to end up in hospital from this condition, possibly a year or two down the road? And so those biomarkers then have predictive power, but could they be used to help treat the conditions before they become problematic? Well, in fact, Dr. Nicolescu thinks that this blood test might help them pick appropriate treatments. Three of the genes that they identified, they know from previous work, are affected by lithium carbonate, which is an established treatment for bipolar disorder. And two of these other biomarkers you can see are affected by a class of antidepressant drugs called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Prozac is the best-known example of this. So if you see one biomarker, you might give lithium. If you see another biomarker, you might give Prozac. And this way, the treatment is going to be really fitted to that patient and what the changes that patient is going through right then. The results even show that there are some non-psychiatric drugs that might be worth trying because the analysis showed that some of these biomarkers could actually be affected by these non-psychiatric drugs. For instance, there is a beta blocker called Pindolol. Right now, they use it for treating high blood pressure. But previous research had also shown that it could affect serotonin activity. So Dr. Nicolasco and his uh, colleagues found that pindolol actually affected levels of six of the biomarkers that showed depression uh, and makes it a good candidate for trying to treat depression. So do you think the biomarker test could replace the the subjective checklist of symptoms that doctors currently use to, to diagnose the conditions? Eventually it could. The researchers I talked to who are aware of the research but didn't work on it are very excited by this. 
but they do say that they want to see how well it works. They'd like to see more research that replicated it. However, they all think that this is not going to replace the checklist anytime soon, but it will help supplement it. And eventually, as it's refined and tested, it it could very well become the go-to test. And in the future, if it goes well, you might actually be using this as a saliva test. In the meantime, it's going to be a good way to confirm and refine diagnoses. It'll be especially good for people who have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or depression. You'll actually be able to track the course of the disease and make some predictions in this individual patient. It could take psychiatric disorders, which can be very difficult to treat, very difficult even to diagnose, and it could make them more objective. Kurt, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. LaDonna Allard was the historian of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, and she got to know every part of the land she was in charge of. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And one day she drove with her husband to a place called Whitestone Hill. And as they drove along, she suddenly told her husband they had to stop because she could hear the grief coming out of the ground. She could hear crying and screaming... And Whitestone Hill was the site of a terrible massacre, September the 3rd, 1863, when a great number of women and children from the Sioux tribe had been herded into a ravine by troops from the U.S. Army. Among the children herded through the ravine was her great-great-grandmother, Mary Big Moccasin, who was then nine years old. And she was shot and lay in the field calling for her mother for hours. And her great-great-grandmother's voice, too, seemed to be coming out of the ground. Now, the great irony was that on that very date, September the 3rd, but this time in 2016... LaDonna Allard found herself in a field facing heavily armoured men who had come to clear up a gathering of tribes. And this time, it was a camp which she had made herself to resist the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline through North Dakota, and particularly through her part of it. are still going and they're yelling at the men in hard hats. One man in hard hat threw one of the protesters down. She thought to herself, how is it that on the very day of the anniversary of the terrible massacre of 1863, I am standing here also being oppressed and driven out by white men. She supposed it was happening because she was living in a time of prophecy, a time that had been talked about and foretold by the old women of the tribe who used to sit around the kitchen table at night and talk. One of the characters they discussed was something called the Black Snake, which was going to come and destroy the world. The old women supposed that the Black Snake was probably the new interstate which had come through North Dakota. 
But as LaDonna herself thought, the Black Snake was this Dakota Access Pipeline, which was approved in 2014 by Barack Obama's administration to carry oil from the shale fields of North Dakota into Illinois. She was certainly no activist. She'd been trained as a historian and she'd worked for 25 years with the Standing Rock Sioux to build a historical preservation office. Gradually, she began to think that she must do something about this. It wasn't enough to be merely a historian recording these sites. She had to take a stand. And so she made her land available and she called this the Sacred Stone Camp and set it up at first with just a few people. But gradually, as word got out that the tribes were beginning to resist the pipeline, more and more people came. She gave an appeal on social media, and that brought, in the end, thousands of people. It was just like the great gathering of the Sioux that had happened before the White Stone Hill Massacre. Everybody getting together for a cause, um, sitting around the blazing fires, telling stories and so on. And this protest in the camps went on for about a year. Meanwhile, the administration in Washington was going back and forth and back and forth on the pipeline. The Obama administration paused it. Then when Donald Trump came in, he wanted it to continue. It had always been a very disorganized protest, but it had also become rather controversial with the local people who found that it was all very messy, this camp. There was occasional trouble and it was all getting rather out of hand. And so the camp had largely been cleared away by March 2017. After the protest ended, she was still the historian of the tribe and it was still her work to go round the sites of the villages, what remained of them. And as she did so, she could at least feel some pride and some confidence that when people walked there in the future, as she had walked on Whitestone Hill, they wouldn't hear the sadness and grieving coming out of the ground, but they would hear the resistance of her people. And be assured that they had done all they could to keep the spirit of the ancestors alive and to keep the black snake at bay. Anne Rowe on LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who's died aged 64. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin, with extra help this week from Emily Elias and Pete Naughton. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.